perseverance and spirit have done wonders in all ages. The words of General George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Khan from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we're going to look at last night's debate, the most recent polling, what that tells us about the coming election. We look at the challenges facing the Republic this week, and in our hot take segment, we're going to look at the village people, yep, <laughs> as well as some other fine stuff, wrap with our Guardian of the Week. Please make sure to subscribe, give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. Patrick, we had a huge debate last night. It was the second debate, the only of two debates. What did you think of it last night? Uh, if I was going to grade uh, the performance of the two candidates mm-hmm. on this debate, I'd probably give them both uh, a solid B for what they needed to, you know, what they came in there and did. Yeah. The problem is that a B was fine for Joe Biden, but not at all for what for Donald Trump. You know, it's interesting. I think that President Trump he may have helped Senate, the Senate Republicans more than anybody last night, because at least it took the it, it stopped the bleeding of the outrageous behavior by the president, uh, which then kind of just can balance people. I don't necessarily think that he moved people over, uh, which was his goal. But part of the reason he didn't move people over was the successful debate of Joe Biden last mm-hmm. night. We saw something like this uh, during the primaries. And it happened when it came down to like the final wire and it was Biden. Remember, it was Biden versus Sanders. And it was like, OK, Biden, you need to put him away now. And Sanders had his one shot, one to one. And Biden came out and won that debate. Last night was the same thing. Those five days of sitting in his basement, as, as what everyone says, prepping for that debate was hugely valuable. Yes, I do think Joe Biden probably about 65 to 70 minutes in started to tire a little bit. Um, and, and that did have an effect. And there was one with an oil question, which I think we're going to get to in a minute. But other than that, I thought Biden was sharp. Also, because Trump was on his heels, partially because of Leslie Stahl, which I think we're going to get to later. But because Trump was almost neutered last night, which we've never seen before, in a way, had he come out with that performance on the first debate, I think he would be in a much better position than he is now because it was a safe performance. He didn't make as many mistakes nearly as he did in the first debate. But I don't think that's what was called for here. I think right. that, that was that was a major problem. Right. There's no doubt that a uh, question that Joe Biden gained uh, after the first debate uh, because of Trump's performance. So so Trump then dug that hole deeper that he had to dig out of for this debate. So instead of being six points behind uh, nationally, he's now nine points behind. So, yeah. so that, that's, the, that's the deficit that he started out with, which meant he really needed Joe Biden to make a gaffe. I mean, that was the only thing that could come out of this. And, is that that, and, I, and I say this all the time, remember? I say all Please. the time, the people who watch the debates are the partisans who've already made up their mind. Yes. It's, it's the aftermath of the debate, what get, gets reported after that. And you needed the, re, the reporting after this to be... Uh, something major that Joe Biden made a mistake on, and that now, just didn't happen. It could be oil. We're not going to get to it yet. But it, it, we had a couple of lines by Biden last night that were incredibly powerful. I was curious what you thought of this. When he said it's not – I thought he parried the Hunter Biden question. I th- We all thought that that was going to be the whole story of the debate the whole time, that Trump was just going to hunter, hunter, hunter. But basically, with him parrying it and saying, let's talk about your taxes. You want to talk about corruption? I'm happy to talk about it. But then he finishes with this thought. It's not about my family. It's not about your family. It's about your family at the kitchen table in your home. I'm curious what you thought of Trump's response to that. Because I thought Biden, as soon as he did it, I turned to my wife and I went, there you go. That's what he needed to say. Then Trump comes back over the top and says, what a political politician thing to say. I have my feeling about that moment. What did you think when you saw that? Well, I think it's just another sign, you know, that that Trump has has absolutely no ability to show empathy. Um, The way he parries uh, these things. And, um, there's another moment and I'll talk about it in a second, but I want to, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, similar. I, I, I thought, I thought that it you know, I said, he's the president. What do you mean? You're the politician of the country and you're missing the point. You're missing yeah. the point. 
That's what it, that's what it struck me as. Right. And I thought that was a bad moment for the president right there. Right. There was another moment later on where where I misheard something that actually Trump had said. Um, and, and this tells you a lot about the people who are watching the debate when I put this on Twitter as a question about did Trump say this? And this was this was like at the end of the immigration section of the debate. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden kind of had a last word. I need to get a last word in. And and Kristen Walker was going to go on with something and let Joe Biden go on. And then he said, uh, you know, there are 525. 545, um, really. Yeah, it's really 545. But he said 525 uh, children who who don't know how they're going to grow up, don't know what families they're going to have, whatever it was. And it sounded like Trump said good. (laughs) Right. Right. And so I thought, did, did he really just say what I said? And I was like in a weird place in Biden's uh, screed there, the, the, the way where Biden was going on. But it's because I was focused on Biden that I really wasn't had my ears tuned to what Trump was going to say. And so I just put that on Twitter. Did he say good? And like Twitter lit up um, on, on my tweet there and everybody's saying, yes, that's exactly what he, that's exactly what he said. But a couple of people said, oh, I, I think he said, go ahead. And so after the debate was over, I went back and listened to it. And sure enough, I mean, it was crystal clear. He said, go ahead. But the Democrats on Twitter, and this is what I say about people who watch these debates, they've already made up their mind what they said. So they, like me, not paying attention to what Trump is saying because their ears are focused on Biden, kind of heard good out of their ears, but then didn't go back and look at it closely and say, oh, no, that he said, go ahead to Kristen Welker, meaning go ahead and move on to the next question or, or finish the, finish up this question, whatever you want to do. That was what he was saying. But still, even though he wasn't as bad as I initially thought it was with him saying good, it was still like he was completely ignoring the fact that there are 545 kids without parents out there. And he had absolutely nothing to say about that exhibited any empathy whatsoever about it. That was a tough moment for him, for sure. I will say that, you know, we, we go back to Al Gore and his first debate against George Bush with the lockbox and everything. And then you have the moment, what, what people remember from that debate is, you know, the, the split screen and Bush is looking over and going, you're all right, what's wrong with you, dude? Typically, and I'm looking at this from the, from an actor point of view, typically when you're making faces, when someone else is speaking, it's not going to make you look good, right? It, it's good. It's not going to look good on you. I'm going to argue that Joe Biden's algorithms last night were world class, top, a top notch. I mean, and my favorite moment that made me laugh out loud was when they were talking about climate and Trump was talking about we're doing all these things for climate, good air, good, good water. Everything's great. We're going to plant a trillion trees. And Biden just starts laughing. And, you know, there were other times over the course of the debate where he wanted to be like, are you insane? How are you even going to say that? Typically, I say to candidates, like, don't do that. Like, be don't don't leak your energy. Looking on the other side with the president, there was an example of his face not helping him at all when they were in the split screen. Rahm Emanuel called him petulant, spoke to that very thing and said he just looked like a petulant little child the whole time. He also looked guilty and like he was losing. And then at the end of the debate, it was very sort of subtle moment. Jill Biden comes in with her fabulous dress and mask combo, which I was like, wow, did you get one? Yeah, yeah, that, that was really, that was some mask. Really, really nice. Wearing, yeah. And um, and the first lady walks across the stage, does not acknowledge Mr., uh, Vice President Biden, not to be surprised, goes over. So Jill Biden gives pres- uh, Vice President Biden a big hug, like the warmest of hugs. It's like, yeah, that's the kind of person I want running our country. Miss, Our first lady goes over to Mr. Trump and he turns to her. And if you look, you can see it. And he goes, how did I do? Like a little boy. I showed my wife and she said, oh, my God, that's the first time I've ever felt badly for him. And he just looked and then they held hands for, you know, four seconds. And then, as we have seen many times when they hold hands, she just slapped his hand away. Yeah, she pulls it away. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. It happens every single time. Every single time he reaches out to touch her, she recoils. She says, Stormy Daniels, stay away. Stormy Daniels. Yeah. Now, um, this oil sure is more of that. By the way, before you oh, get to ahead. that, so um, I, I want to agree with you on on this, the thing about what Biden did there. Um, and he usually, and many times it was accompanied by uh, the word, come on, yeah. right? Uh, come on, come on. And the reason why he gets away with it, and what you're pointing out, and Al Gore didn't, is because when Joe Biden does it, it's he's doing it as an everyman calling a, uh, you know, a bluffer's bluff. Mm-hmm. rather than as an elitist saying, you know, coming off as you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and that's that's the difference between Gore and Biden in the in the comparison that you made there is Joe Biden is just speaking 
the same way that everybody else sitting at home at their kitchen table is doing with politicians. And like, energetically, oh, get off I just, that, man. I want to talk about this energetically, right? So the thing about the first debate was Biden was just on the attack, right? It was like he was think of it like a boxing match, and Mike Tyson was on the other side, just boom, boom, boom. I'm just gonna throw every punch that I have. So Biden comes out, and you have to know that he must have trained on for many, many different opponents with Trump, right? Are you gonna get the Mike Tyson, or are you gonna get somebody who's gonna kind of stick and move and and you you know try to? Well, what he got was not the Mike Tyson. I mean, Trump was on great behavior. I have to, you have to tip your hat to him on this, that he actually, well, I didn't know that he would be capable over the course of 90 minutes after being poked at by Biden. Well, what did Biden do? He didn't just sit there. He went on the attack. He, he went for shots against the president. I mean, like 10 of them, 15 of them, and they landed. And the problem for President Trump was he doesn't prepare he doesn't believe in preparation. Biden is working on all of these lines. So when he comes through with them, boom, it's like an, as an actor, you need to learn your lines, stand straight and tell your truth. President Trump was just throwing things up against the wall and wasn't able to parry to anything else. Now, if if he could say something like, well, I was working on the the plague and that's why I didn't have time, that'd be one thing. But that's not how he thinks it. He's just like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my thing. But he took away his own power. He was neutered through the experience. I just want to say one more thing about Biden. He did get tired. Trump did not get right. tired. Trump did not get tired. The The shift then at about an hour, 21 minutes in, I don't know if you caught this, Joe Biden looked at his watch. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that. He looks, he just looked at his watch and he went, okay, 10 more minutes. And then he got his last wind for the end. It was great. I mean, I, I was very, I was scared out of my mind watching this debate. I was not bored for a second. And it took, you know, and then when it ended, I just looked at my wife and I just went, it's over. Like, it's over. Like, there's no, he he can't get hurt. But we have to talk about this, Patrick. And I need. Yeah, so this was counsel. a few minutes. So you're right. He was flagging. It's when he was tired. He was flagging about 90 minutes in. He got his last win there. But while he was flagging, he got that question about energy. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, if, if there was any gaff in there. And I, I still stand by the fact there wasn't, there wasn't a big enough gap to move the needle, but there was that question about energy and what would you do? And, and Trump saying he wants to get rid of oil and Biden saying, yes, I do. And then <laughs> and Trump's you know, he's trying reaction to... saying, that's a big deal. Whoa. Yeah. Would you, I, I was actually impressed by Trump being nimble enough on his toes to be like, wow, I can't believe you just said that. I mean, I know you think it, but I can't believe you said it, it was an interesting moment to see the president that way. How does that affect Pennsylvania? How does that affect Texas? How does that affect those States, Patrick? Well, that's the, that's the big question, um, because um, it, we we don't know. I mean, the, the the I think that the folks for whom fossil fuels and protecting it, bringing back the coal industry and all this stuff that Trump was talking about back in 2016, and Hillary Clinton lost that vote by saying it's never coming back. I think Trump already has that vote, meaning okay. those voters aren't up for grabs. It's so not, there's not some light Biden voters who work in the oil industry who go, yeah. Jesus, I got to protect right. my job. But very few of them are. And the, the, the real question is, and I say this not knowing exactly how this will play in Pennsylvania or Texas, um, but you know, also the industry itself is, is tanking. Um, you know, the, the price of oil is uh, basically hovering at record lows. It went negative. Remember, it went negative at one point uh, in the futures market. Um, so I think most people realize, I I think he could have put this, he could have framed this in a different way. Yes, he should have. Right. Is that, no, we're, we're going to continue the energy industry. It's just this, the the same way that if you look at the latest ads by Exxon and everybody else is the direction that we're going is that we have to go to clean renewable and guess what? That pays better. That's those are those are all better jobs, and that's Listen, what we're trying to do. I've so, two, so it was just I think the way he phrased it was could be problematic. Um, I don't think it really changes the dynamic all that much. Okay, good because I have I have a I have a really smart guy I spoke to who to for 
clarity is my younger brother uh who is a very very smart guy as is my older brother who is a very very smart guy and love i love to talk politics with both of them uh when i spoke to my younger brother about it this morning uh he said look maybe he the chance that he had to win texas might go away but that's about the extent of what he thought the ex you know would happen i just want to say one other thing you know there were those moments which typically i kind of cringe at when a political candidate is up on stage being so overly passionate which biden was doing it was about 40 minutes into the debate and he really like he was was mad and he was talking and he was expressing himself right and i was like his outrage is working why is it working so well oh i get it because it's so outrageous what the president is saying that it doesn't come across as disingenuous it comes across as well thank god somebody's actually standing up to him which made for me this debate last night which i was very nervous about watching both for how it was going to go but also for the experience of 90 minutes of watching such ugliness like we did last time for me, it was just a much more pleasant experience to 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 watch, to to yes. listen and see. Did you have the same feeling? Yeah, I I I felt. I mean, in fact, I, I in the beginning I was saying this is repetitive and boring um, right. because <laughs> when they were on the COVID section, it's just simply because the way the conversation was going is they just kept repeating themselves over and over and over again. But it was watchable. I mean, it wasn't it like was. I was cringing and turning away. Although, oh, I I do want to say one more thing though about you know the impact of this debate and the things that were said there and particularly that that exchange about the oil industry is that you know we're everybody's concentrated on well we'll lose them these coal miners in in uh pennsylvania or the oil workers in texas or whatever the other thing that you're not looking at is that as i said the vast majority of voters nearly every single voter is decided at this point if you saw any of the undecided focus groups that were on TV uh, the other night or online. Uh, that's basically the entire number of undecided voters there are. <laughs> that, that They were all in, in that one group. <laughs> that was it. Now, they, didn't represent, they didn't represent the undecided voters. They were the undecided voters in America. I but, do think that Trump did himself some service, though, last night. Right. I do but, think that he did some service. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But, but I think uh, but, but that, that one exchange, there was something important that you have to know is that because this is not about a per persuasion and this is about turnout, an important part of Joe Biden's base are young voters. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they vote significantly more democratic. Mm -hmm. they're, much, about they're much harder to get out to vote. And right now, that's where he is. This is, what's, this is what we're looking at right now. A significant number, of, uh, probably a third or more than a third of the votes that will be cast in this election have already been cast. They've already been mailed in, and the vast majority of them are Democratic, which means in terms of chasing down your voters and the money that you have to spend to chase voters down and get them to vote, Democrats are spending all their money on fewer voters at this point because they've got so many in the bank. So they can expend more resources going after those younger, harder to reach and harder to turn out voters. And what might help get those voters out? Talking about what is always in our polls, their number one issue, which is climate change. Okay. So flip that oil exchange on its reverse, and that might actually help the Biden campaign get out some more of that younger vote that might not have turned out. Hmm. Interesting. I, I want to finish with one, two thoughts. The best moment for Trump for me and the best moment for Biden um, for Trump. I just want to say this. I think in a way, he rehabilitated himself partially. Like, it, I, I think he gained back a couple of voters, not many, but I definitely think it was a net positive for him um, of the, over the course of the debate, even though I don't think it helps him in the war. I think he did well during the battle. And I think he did well for himself that way. I also think he does help Republican senators who, if they felt like, uh, I may have said, but if they, if, if voters are like, this is just a dumpster fire, at least last night it was just a dumpster and it wasn't on fire. Now on the, on the democratic side for president, see what I said, vice mm -hmm. president Biden for vice president Biden, his best moment for me beyond the family moment was the two times he quoted president Obama's 2004 democratic national convention speech, where he was talking about red states and blue states and that he's going to be the president for all the states and for all the people. I think that that is a message that is extremely, extremely helpful for him. Also, I was very pleased because at one point I was like, you better bring up the masks bring up the masks. And he did. And he brought up the masks again. So overall, I think it was as good a night as I could have expected or hoped for, for Joe Biden and a good night for the president as well. And a, and a good night for, for the Republic, I believe. 
Um, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll agree with you there. Um, you know, most of the polls that were taken, the flash polls were taken, said that Joe Biden won the debate uh, there. Uh, yeah, pretty, so, pretty convincingly. 54-35, so, right. uh, 53-39, and 52-41. Those are pretty significant right. wins. Although by not, uh, it was a larger margin in the first debate. So what you were saying <laughs> about Trump not hurting himself as much is 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 right. Um, he didn't. But what was interesting is if you look at those polls, they also had, you know, or or did both do equally as well. You have a large number of Republicans who said both were doing did as equally as well, which meant oh. that they thought that Trump lost, but they can't say that. So that that's kind of what's interesting about that. But having said that, those polls mean absolutely nothing. Um, yeah. They don't tell you they don't move the needle. In fact, if you look at the favorability ratings uh, of the two candidates, they didn't move much before. And they moved after. one point. They moved right. one point towards Biden. They did. And I thought that that was yeah one point. So that's that's to me that's that's a meaningless move. And uh, you know more about this. Than that's I that's, do. That's status quo. Than so, pretty much everybody. Let so me go on. Let me let me looking looking at that. Yeah, I want to jump ahead now yeah. to to the polls themselves, the real polls, the polls that tell us what's going on in the world and, and where the race stands right now. And I had a poll out in Iowa, the Monmouth yes. University poll in Iowa, and that's going to be an interesting race. And uh, the, you have a Senate race out there, uh, Joni Ernst running for reelection. And Teresa Greenfield. Greenfield has had a narrow lead throughout this, uh, throughout the fall, not the entire race. Back in the summer, Ernst was ahead, but out the fall and through and and in terms of all the different polls that I've seen, uh, Joe Biden, however, it's been a little bit all over the place between him and Trump. Uh, he's been behind. He's been ahead. He's been was behind in our poll before. Now he's pulled slightly ahead. And it is on the back of older voters. It's on the back of senior voters. That this is happening is that and I've talked about this before is we're seeing this nationally, but in a place like Iowa, where about 30 percent or so of the electorate are going to be seniors, um, that means a lot. Uh, and one of the things that I also see in this poll is that when we do our likely voter models, we go from all registered voters to the 70 percent who, of, of, uh, who might actually vote. Joe Biden actually does better. And the reason for that is that the people who fall off and out of the likely voter model tend to be in any state that we do tend to be people who are younger or have um, uh, lower education levels. They don't know college degree. They're more working class, so on and so forth. In most states that have diverse populations, that hurts the Democrat because they tend to be voters of color. In Iowa, they're not. They're Trump voters. Um, so that's, you know, so Trump actually needs as high a turnout as possible in order to win this thing. He needs basically every Iowa voter to show up. But what we're seeing in our polling is suggesting that there are a number of voters there who were turned off by President Trump, don't feel strongly enough about him that even if they did show up, they would vote for him, but they don't feel strongly enough to actually go out and do that. And that seems to be working in Biden's favor. Is there a chance that the numbers are going to get so extreme that that'll happen across the country where people will say, you know what? I mean, there's going to be the hardcore Trump supporters who are going to vote no matter what. But it feels a lot better to vote for somebody if you think they got a chance to win. If it looks like they aren't going to win, if it looks like Trump and that won't happen with Biden, it doesn't look like Biden is going to go in thinking that he has no chance. What are the chances that it by November 1st, it just looks like the polls are such that Biden's going to run away with this thing and Trump supporters decide to stay home? Yeah. Well, it's going to be at the margins because the vast majority of Trump voters believe that Trump is going to win. And by vast majority, I mean nearly every single Trump voter believes that Trump is going to win uh, this race. Uh, and Which is amazing. Yeah. So so they believe that there are secret Trump voters out there. They believe that they'll, that they'll merge from the from the woods. They believe that that's what happened in 2016, that the polls didn't catch them. And that's not true at all. That's not why the polls were wrong in 2016. There were other reasons. What were the other reasons? Let's the remind reasons, us because yeah, the so, polls are showing the same thing. And, and two, we have everyone listening or many of the people listening are sitting there going, uh. Yeah, I heard this before. I was looking at, at this, the Iowa poll or also our Arizona poll. And we were saying at this point in time, you know, we also had Hillary Clinton doing fairly well in these places uh, as well, although all those polls were taken before the Comey letter. The Comey 2016. letter, which so was, that was today, uh, right. four uh, years ago today, Friday yeah. before. Right. So um, 
so that was that was a clear difference. Um, and uh, that actually, so we saw a meaning that there was a late shift. There was clearly a mm -hmm. late shift that all the polls did not catch. There are Hillary Clinton voters who decided to stay at home. Same thing that I'm talking about possible with the Trump voters right yeah, now. Yeah, Hillary it, Clinton voters said, I, I can't really bring myself to vote for her. She'll probably win anyway. I, I will stay home. I think that why me, oh, and the other reason was the education issue back in 2016, where we had too many college educated voters and they voted, they were voting for Hillary Clinton. And so we fixed that part. The part that we don't know about are the people who are going to stay home because we don't know that until they actually stay home. But it's getting more and more likely that if voters stay home, it's going to hurt Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. well, because if because, you think because you're the, those are the voters who are left out who haven't voted yet. And if you think that you're, if you think your country is on the verge of going over a cliff, which I think most Democratic voters feel, they're not gonna, they're, they're gonna have to use their vote. I have this nasty hunch. I think I brought it up with you before, but I'm gonna bring it up again. The one thing that scares me is if on November fifth, or whenever, no, it'll be November sixth when we do our episode after the election. Probably it'll be the sixth. The one thing that scares me is that the president will win because there is going to be, and I've asked you this, Republican voters who have never voted before and who are so pleased with the president and how he runs the country that they're going to come out in droves in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and let's just say Pennsylvania and Florida in those two states. Am I wrong? Am, is this is this a fear that is unfounded on my part? I asked you about this. It was during our hiatus. I called you. I was like, am I wrong? And you were like, yeah, you're wrong. It's not going to be that. Are you sure I'm wrong? And the reason why is because we're we're capturing those folks in our polls, the the new voters. Now, I should say that there there could be a lag here because of voter registration, and we did see in the last month a gain for Republicans in voter registration, especially in Florida, right? So, in, in in some of these key states. Now, part of that change appears to be, and I don't have enough data to to say this with certainty, but appears to be just some people changing their voter registration. They're excuse me, changing their party registration. But why would they Trump. change to Republican and then not vote for Trump? <clears throat> there seems to be a there has, seems to be an effort out there that there was uh, a lot of voters who changed. Well, well, the reason why I'm saying that is because oh, there was an effort out there just to change your party registration um, to get more re Republicans registered. These were Democrats and independents who were already voting for President Trump, so it changed their registration, but didn't change who they were voting for. Um, so we were already capturing them in the polls, but there could be some people that we didn't capture. The question is how many, uh, is it enough to change the polls? Maybe by 1%. So we're back to the situation where if you see a state where Joe Biden is leading by just two or three points, mm -hmm. then you should automatically be thinking in your head, well, this is a toss up state because now, of the whole host of those factors. So it's not like if Joe Biden is leading by six points in a state and you say, well, these no voters can come in and make up those six points. They can't, there's not enough of them. Those voters can come in and make up one point. And then if you add on a couple points of potential polling error for other things, then a three point margin probably is is still too too close to, to call it. But a six or seven point margin, you're probably in the ballpark of saying Joe Biden is ahead. Okay, so Michigan looks in Biden's camp. Minnesota looks in Biden's although, camp. Although I, although I will say Michigan is the one state where the, that has the largest polling error. So my thing about saying something's within three points for Michigan, I would probably double it. Uh, Joe Biden needs a, but he, Joe Biden does have a big lead. So he needs a bigger than a six point lead, I think, wow. to feel That's comfortable that, that he's going to win that state. The poll, it's hard. Michigan is an extremely hard state to poll. I have three, I have three states that I really want to talk to you about. Okay. Okay. So the first one I want to talk to you about, I think is, is a, they're all huge. The la, Texas is the last one and it's not as huge, but Pennsylvania is huge. Pennsylvania poll came out this morning, seven point lead for vice president Biden. How does that feel to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the last time I pulled Pennsylvania, which was at the be very beginning of the month, I had I th a double digit lead somewhere around 10 points or so. Uh, most of the polls since then have been coming in around five, six, seven, eight points in that in that range. And is they've that, been, is that safe enough? For the I think that's safe enough uh, for right now, if that holds through the next nine days. And so, if last night went differently, it might not have held, but last night doesn't change anything for doesn't that. Appear, appear doesn't appear to change it, unless there's something else that, that goes on with advertising, some other things that go on, um, that doesn't change it. Uh, so I think Pennsylvania right now, Joe Biden is not, <clears throat> it's not a done deal, but Joe Biden is is definitely in the lead. It's, it's his to lose at this point. Okay, I want to go to Florida next. <laughs> I know it says Texas, but I want to go to Florida next, Florida. 
Where is it at? I mean, Biden by three points, but but you know, or Gillum Biden, was up or, by five or Trump points. or Trump by two points. Right, exactly. This is one of those states where, like Michigan. Uh, no, it's not. It's not less about the polling. It's more about uh, voter administ- election administration down there. This is a place where it, the election administration is funky. Um, so all sorts of odd things can happen, and frequently Does do in Florida. Does DeSantis um, steal it? Yeah. So that's a that's a question. So when you're when you're looking at poll looking at polls that are ranging from a slight Trump lead to a slight Biden lead in Florida. Um, it's a toss up that suggests that, you know, with the shenanigans that are possible in Florida, that I would give the edge it's still at this point to Trump. But mm-hmm. let me point out one thing. Florida will count its votes early. Yeah. Um, and it and it closes early. If 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 the networks are able to call Florida for Joe Biden on election night, the, the, it's over. He'll just need one other of those swing states to get it. And of course, if he's got Florida, he's going to have to have one of those other states. Um, but prepare yourself for not exactly knowing what Florida. I just is going I don't do I, I just don't have any memory of Florida going to the Dem- to a Democrat in a close election. So it just feels like it's uh, it's right. it, Florida always breaks the hearts of the Democratic Party. Yep. Now, last one I just want to ask about, because it would be such a huge like swing. Is Texas can't he can't win Texas can he Biden couldn't win Texas it, win it Texas would, it would have to be we'd have to be building towards a landslide over these next nine days uh-huh. uh, in order for that to happen so it's like a twelve percent chance that he might pull Texas off right but having said that spending money in Texas for Joe Biden with the money that he has available to spend makes sense for the Democratic Party you might uh, you might hold on to a couple of the House seats that you won. In 2018, you might flip another one. I don't think Hagar at this point can knock off Cornyn in the Senate race, but there's another race, the most important non-federal race on the ballot in the United States this year is for the Texas House. Right. Because that has to do with redistricting. So, um, I, and I think that's why Joe Biden's spending money, but, and, and also, you know, you spend the money there, you soften the ground. If that tsunami hits, then you've softened the ground. You know, you don't want to look back and say, oops, I should have spent more money in Texas. If you've got the money to spend it, spend it now, because if that tsunami hits, then you could win Texas. Before we move on to the Republic, I just want to say one thing, one more thing about Joe Biden. Last night, he looked like the head of the party. He looked like the president of the United States, like he could do the job in a real successful way. Uh, this this goes back to the debate. I'm sorry. I just wanted to say this, that, you know, we spent so much time, you and I, figuring out who is the best Democratic candidate to go up against Donald Trump. Is it Mayor Pete? Is it Kamala? Is it Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders? Frankly, I, I feel like after last night, the Democrats made the right choice because Biden really does really held his space. So when you were talking about the Texas legislature, it just occurred to me, it was like, yeah, Biden's looking out for the whole party, for the whole country, for everybody. He's, there's this video that I posted. If you take a look on my Twitter of him hugging a special needs child and kissing him and, and, and saying, it's going to be okay. We're going to all be okay. You're going to be okay. It was just so sweet. It, it, yeah, it, it the, the, the brought me to tears. The child's father died in the uh, Parkland shooting. Yes. And it just, yeah. it brought me to tears. It was so beautiful. All right, let's move on now to the challenges to the Republic this week. What you wanted to talk about was something that we didn't get into last week because we had so much else on our plate, but we really should talk about it. The Supreme Court. What are your feelings? What are your questions? Okay, so I don't want to go into the nitty gritty of the nomination process here for for Barrett. I, I, mean, I mean, the specific, yeah, uh, the specifics of it, uh, but the whole process itself and what that means for the future of the republic. And this is really important. And uh, I know we have some new listeners. In fact, I should should make note of this because I said something uh, last week about uh, that if you know if Joe Biden wins, we need some sort of Nuremberg style. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, uh, inquiry into this. And that was taken to mean just on like who got Trump elected. Um, and that was not what I mean at all is that we have 25 years of undermining, uh, more than 25 years of undermining, uh, the institutions, the, uh, the norms of, of our institutions. And we need to, to be honest about that, not just say since Trump lost, everything's going to get better, but we really need to look at the things that have changed so much that the public can't trust. Um, uh, the government at all. And it's going to be difficult to win back that trust. And I think we're at the, with what's going on with the Supreme Court nomination right now, that has made it now even that more difficult to do because the norms now are so blown off that you can't say that the, that 
the Democrats should unilaterally disarm and not consider increasing the size of the court or court packing there because I think we're past the point of no return. I don't think you can go back after this appointment and the way it was pushed through and say, okay, now we'll return to the norms and everybody will trust the system. I think yep. we passed it that, that it's too late. And that's I saw everything Chuck Schumer. On the table. I saw, well, I saw, speaking of everything on the table, Chuck Schumer, who, uh, is somewhat mild, right? I mean, he's not he's not a fire thrower all the time. But he was talking about McConnell and the way that this has all gone down. And he was on Ari Melber. I caught a couple of minutes of it last night. And he said, regarding the Supreme Court, everything is on the table. Everything. Now, we have to win the Senate. But once we win the Senate, everything is on the table. That means the nuclear option is on the table. That means that Pack, you know, uh, adding more seats to the court. Someone pointed out if you call it packing the court or if you call it adding more seats to the court will de determine like how you feel about it. It still makes me kind of uneasy, this idea of adding more seats to the court. But it certainly I thought Biden. What did you think of Biden's answer about that? Basically saying that he, once he is elected, he's going to do a commission of six months really looking into the best way for the Supreme Court to move forward. Do you, do you think that was a valuable answer? I kind of did. Yeah, I, th I think so, too, um, yeah. I, I, because, you know, he, it's true. I mean, you have to look at it because the trust in the court has been undermined, um, both by uh, McConnell and others and by the, the court itself. I mean, you know, when Scalia stepped in um, in 2000 in that election case and took the case. Remember, it wasn't about who won or lost that election. It was whether the, the Florida's Supreme Court had sovereignty over deciding how Florida's elect ballots were counted. And Scalia stepped in politically to stop the count. And in fact, they, we just had a Supreme Court case, probably a lot of people didn't even notice that in, in Pennsylvania, right? So uh, the way Pennsylvania is going to count its ballots. And the Pennsylvania, the but then and, was and, and basically, and it's not going to happen because it was a tied vote. So tied vote loses. And Roberts sided with the liberal justices. The conservatives said, yes, we basically, but the, and the point that they were going on, which the Republican, which the Republican litigants were pushing was basically, you can take away from the Florida excuse me, from the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, the ability to decide what the state constitution means, that the federal government can do that, the, the, the federal courts can do that. Because usually what happens is the court will say, well, that's a state issue. There's no federal uh, rules at play here. And that was not what the argument was. And that's what's dangerous here. And that's why uh, you're going to get another justice on the court who would have agreed with that position. And that would, and, yeah. And that undermines... Changes. Article, you know, uh, the Tenth Amendment there, <laughs> hey, so, right? Pulling so, up the tenth, right? So that's why I'm saying, like, everything now. I think we're 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 to the point where we've pushed that boulder over the other side of the mountain in terms of constitutional norms, and there's no way to get it back. Well, Chuck Schumer certainly acted right, like he, and you know, yeah, he didn't see. Well, let me finish, Patrick. Let me finish. Chuck Schumer did not have his typical like, well, we'll have to see. He was like, yo, what's up? There's going to be an argument. There's going to be a fight and they deserve it. And it was like, wow, you really you really feel that you're in the right here. It was it was uh, it was empowering to see. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, it, he it was just, you know, they're, they're taking a new tact and, and just admitting that this is different. I, what, the thing I wanted to say was and how we know that this is this is not about, you know, there's no pretense anymore about what people are doing is that, you know, whenever the Senate, the, the House, whatever, has a position that they're going to take, uh, the party, you know, the party leadership sends out talking point memos to their members. Yeah. Okay. Say, say this, say this, say this, this is, this is what we're hitting. The talking point memo for the Republicans on this Supreme Court nomination is this is what they did to this is because of what they did to uh, Judge Bork, Robert Bork, back right. in 1987. Well, guess whose who's problem that is? That's Mitch McConnell. That was when Mitch McConnell first joined the Senate, saw this happen, and vowed he would never, as a personal vendetta, he would never allow this happen again. So basically what the Republicans are saying in their talking points is that we've been working towards this moment for 30 years slowly but surely dismantling the constitutional norms and the public trust in those norms. And that's why we're here today is because of what Mitch McConnell felt about what happened in 1987 and vowed at that point 
that he would do whatever he could to basically take apart the Constitution. I mean, that's that's the interpretation of, w- of what they're saying right now. They're they're basically admitting it. All right. Well, let's move on to our hot take segment now, where we're going to take 90 seconds to discuss some other topics in the news. And when you hear this sound, it'll be time to move on to the next one. So, Patrick, you're going to send the first one to me. Yes. So, uh, you know, Leslie Stahl was mentioned in the debate and there was that whole 60 minutes brouhaha. What do you make of that? Well, so here's what I thought. I thought that Leslie Stahl was actually a character in that debate last night. I think it was part of the reason that Donald Trump was on such good behavior, because if you look at what happened earlier that day, what happened, it had happened the day before, but the, the aftermath happened that day. And President Trump came off looking like a mean bully, right? That's how I saw it. That's how I saw that that whole exchange and the fact that he got up from the table and said, no, we're done here. I think you've got enough. Leslie, you're terrible. You're negative. And then follows that up with Chris taking a shot at Kristen Welker. I think that somebody really got to him was like, look, right now, if you don't pull things back here, you are going to be seen as a misogynist bully. And you cannot do that to Kristen Welker or you're going to be hated by everybody. I think that that was an underreported aspect of what happened in the debate last night. Does that hold water for you? Uh, it could be. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it was clear that they knew they, they were on the defensive with whatever happened with that 60 minutes uh, debate, uh, 60 minutes interview. We didn't we haven't seen all of it yet. 60 minutes, I think, is still going to show it on Sunday night. They have to. Um, yeah. yeah. So. Um, We'll, we'll see, you know, their side of it. Uh, I thought what was interesting about that whole thing was when um, the press secretary handed this giant book to Leslie Stahl of things that President Trump had done. And I thought there were blank pages in there. No. Uh, I, were there? I just I don't know. I, it might have been the pages <laughs> she opened to, I, I, you know, in the picture that, that I saw. But it was that was really funny. Anyway, let's go on to the uh, you mentioned Kristen Welker. She is, uh, you know, all eyes, I think, were on her because of what had happened with Chris Wallace. So what did you make of her performance? I thought she was fantastic. I mean, I I was nervous for her. I don't know her personally, but I was nervous for her, especially because the president had put had really kind of put his thumb on the scale and sort of, you know, was trying to work the refs beforehand. It really kind of, I thought, was going to put her in a position where she had to be more careful, right, where it had to look like she was not being, you know, was not giving Biden the edge. So here's what I found interesting. If you watch the first half of the debate, she really was harder on Biden at the top of the debate than she was on President Trump. And she really gave Trump a lot of leeway. Then after he looked at her and said, I think that you're doing a great job, right? Which the reason she was doing such a great job is because he was behaving so much better, which made it so that she could do her job better. That after that, he she really gave it to the president really just on the questions that were being asked, which are the truth of what's happening in our country. You know, the race question, all these questions, but I thought she handled herself brilliantly. Uh, my younger brother, who is very smart, said that Kristen Welker should just be doing all debates moving forward, and yeah, that's how it I should be. She was she was really good. I had some, uh, you know, I was a little bored in the beginning because she was allowing them to go back and forth and really not stepping in that much. Um, but I think she played it really well because as it went on, she picked and she, she chose, uh, chose the right times for her to stop them and to, to move in and the other yeah. times to let them go on for another 10 seconds. But it really was the content of the questions that she asked, which were different than I think uh, in terms of immigration and, and, and climate and the other things. And the way she asked those questions and framed them was really a lot different uh, than we had seen in other debates. And I think she did a very good job. Okay. So our next one is, um, you want to talk about Chris Christie and your thoughts about Chris Christie. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's my, my good Jersey friend, Chris, right? Christie. Because you're um, the, listen, and you know, as the number one pollster in America, and I always do like to say that because it really is the truth. Your home state is New Jersey and knowing you, you, you know, Jersey pretty darn well. What did you think of Chris Christie this week? So uh, the the reason why Chris Christie is in the news is because he spent some time in the ICU after getting COVID from being around the White House. Um, and he wrote, he's, he did a big mea culpa. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that said, I really made a big mistake by doing this. Now, he kind of like hemmed and hauled and didn't name names about who was responsible, started with the media and others, and then ended with public officials in his list of people who should be more responsible about this. But um, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, and that's the kind of Chris Christie that I knew when he was governor, there were times when, you know, he would say, you know, this is the right thing to do the same time when, when the state got hit by uh, hurricane Sandy and, you know, he stepped in and said, I need the, president Obama's help. And, and the Republicans held it against him. So there are times that, that he will do things like that. 
Um, did you pay any attention at all to to what he what he did or C- said? Certainly. Look, I've always found Chris Christie to be appealing and uh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's not the only word I want to use. I mean, there's something about him that is arrogant, deeply arrogant. Uh, but I always thought that it, in 2016, I thought that Christie would have been a, a really good candidate for president. I think he's trying to set himself up for that again. Uh, watching him talk on ABC after the debate and seeing him parse his words and say why he really did well, the president did well. It was interesting to watch. It, it, it yeah. will be interesting to see how he lands and how he can distance himself from Trump if it is President Biden and not President okay. Trump moving forward. So let's go on to uh, our village people reference here. <laughs> so you, you want to you talk about Macho Man. So go ahead. talk. About I do. It. Okay. So look, YMCA is a song that is used all across this country. If you go to Yankee games in the Bronx where I live, um, YMCA is YMCA. Everyone dances to it. It is a it is an American song by the village people who were in the late 70s, uh, were a band of, I believe, gay men talking about the West Village, the village people. So the other night, my, my wife was a um, sorry, my puppy is 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 barking in the background because he knows I'm talking about the village people. Um, my wife back in the day uh, used to uh, be a bartender and would was in a bar where the village people played all the time. It gives you an idea of what kind of bar it was. And so the other night we're watching a Trump rally for a few moments just to sort of get a vibe. And it's right before it starts. And they're playing Macho Man. Now, they had already played YMCA. That was a big song that they played. Now they're playing Macho Man. And my wife says to me, do you know what that song is about? I said, no. She said, it's about gay men loving each other. It's about having, you know, getting, you know. And so if you look at the words, body, want to feel my body. Body's such a thrill, my body. Every man wants to be a macho man and have the kind of body always in demand. And I'm watching these men in red hats singing Macho Man. And it was so uh, what's the word? It was the, the, the dissonance was full for me. I just couldn't, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, do they even know what this song is about? So that's why I want to talk about it in hot takes because yeah, that, uh, it made me laugh. It's funny because, um, uh, to ch- take this to a more serious, oops, time's up. Take no. a more serious note. Uh, just one quick thing is that, you know, th- these are the same people and I see them saying that they're defending the constitution and then they mention all the things that Trump has done that to undermine the constitution is something that they support. So yeah, the the dissonance there is is crazy, and it even extends to them getting up and singing songs about being gay, celebrating. So anyway, we we can't uh, we have to mention Ben Sass, right? Because this week, you and President Trump agreed about Ben Sass. Yeah, not fully, and I'll tell you, I was somewhat moved by our producer last week. Justin, who will be joining us in a moment, Um, because what Justin said was, I'd rather he say it than not, even if he's late. So I really like dug deep into it. And I thought about what if he had said, yes, let's hear the testimony. What would have changed? Would they have gotten 66 votes even if they had heard the testimony? The answer to that is no, they wouldn't have. They would not have they would they would not have convicted him in the Senate anyway. And here's here's the upside for Ben Sass this week and how I'm going to be kinder to Ben Sass than I ever have before. What I think he's doing. You're going to, we're like, going to lose listeners if you do that. No, no. Okay. We are, <laughs> I believe Ben Sass is laying the groundwork for the moment when the president, if the president were to lose and decides that he's not going to leave. Jeff Flake saying this is an outrage wouldn't mean anything, but a sitting Republican Senator standing up and saying, no, you are leaving would indeed make a difference. So I, I've shifted just a little bit on the Ben Sass. I'm curious what you think. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> That's okay. all I've got to say about Ben I, Sass. Hey, I, 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 I can't, I'm, I'm not going to defend Ben Sass. That is not, that is not part of my job. Um, but I, I just wanted to give Justin a little credit. So now, uh, Justin, we'd like to bring you in, if you would, um, as our registered Republican producer, which you are. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about what you thought of last night's debate? I thought it was underwhelming. Uh, and maybe that was largely just kind of based on the performance of Trump during the first debate. I honestly didn't think Joe Biden was very good. Uh, but I also don't think he did anything to hurt himself. 
I, I felt like he he bumbled over his words a lot. I know the stutter is an issue, but he also made uh, some mistakes in terms of when he was talking about the mandatory minimums, calling them minimum mandatories uh, multiple times. Uh, I felt like he, I think he was a little thrown off because he was waiting for Trump to be Trump and Trump wasn't really Trump. You know, I have a question about that uh, within our remaining time here in this last take. To me, those stumbles and those stutters would be more dangerous if we did not have the stuttering as an understanding of who he was and how he grew up and that he was able to overcome that. Like I see that now and I just sort of go, wow, look at him. Look how well he's doing. You know, it's 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 almost not fair to President Trump because I'm giving him. But I, but that could just be because of the way that my heart lies where I'm looking to go. So it's always interesting to hear from you, Justin. Any other thoughts about the week or any other thoughts? Uh, it's very interesting that uh, the whole Hunter Biden witch hunt going on on Fox News and, and just the way they're kind of covering that. I've been interested to see what the other news networks would do in terms of covering it all uh, with a laptop and, and the uh, the former Hunter Biden associate that came out right before the debate and was at the debate. Uh, but they seem to largely ignore it, uh, which I, I understand at the same time, I think it gives Trump and his administration ammunition that the other news agencies, the quote unquote fake news, aren't willing to cover things like this. Maybe. You may be right about that. Um, I do think that the Wall Street Journal coming out with an article minutes after the debate basically saying that uh, that Biden had no uh, attachment to anything that happened there and that there was no deal in China kind of neutered that a little bit. And also the fact that Trump was not able to kind of make that stick on Biden, in my opinion, in the debate last night. But thank you, Justin. Always good to get a registered Republican's viewpoint about where things are going with the Republic. So uh, we'll see you again next week when we bring you back in again. And now we're going to move on to our guardian of the week. And Patrick, you have a candidate. You want to tell us who it is? Well, this was a guardian for us back in the spring, and I, th I felt we needed to bring him back because he was been under attack uh, this week. That's uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yep. Uh, you know, the president, even in debate, misrepresented things that Fauci had said about wearing masks um, and and had has been calling him out. Uh, throughout the week, and this 79-year-old man still plows ahead as probably, at this particular point, the most trusted person in the United States government right now in the country. You know, he had a moment, and I think it was this week since our last show, where someone, where he was asked about this, like, why, have, why do you stay? And he said, I've been doing this job since 1985, I think it was 85. 84, maybe 83. I remember when I met him, here's a little, there's a name drop for you. And we talked about his interview with Ronald Reagan and him uh, talking about Reagan saying to him, just always tell me the truth and never worry about getting fired. And that's the best that you can do for the country. Right. So that's what he does. And that's what he did. I was very honored to spend as much time with him as I did. This was years ago. This was 2016. Um, but what he said was, I've been waiting my whole life for this fight. I've been training my whole life for this fight. I'm not going anywhere. I need to be here to do everything I can to save and protect people, even as he's getting death threats, even as his family is getting threats, not death threats, he said, but they're getting harassed. Uh, it's uh, it, I agree wholeheartedly. I give you a full stamp of approval on this one. The guardian of the week for this week is Dr. Anthony Fauci. All right. And that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any comments or thoughts for the show, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes on your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends and family so others can find us. And if you want to catch up on some of our past episodes or give us a review, check us out at our website at guardians-republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode soon. See ya. Thanks, Justin. Always. Thank you.